Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I'm Jason, a guy that has read a book. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And today we're here with David Poses, author of The Weight of Air. Uh, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and why you're here? Sure. Um, Hi. Uh, I I wrote this book, The Weight of Air. Um, It's a a chronicle of my, uh, basically the depression that led to uh, heroin when I was 16 and then the decades uh, following of trying to stop using heroin. Um, my, uh, my, my mom started taking me to therapy when I was four. Um, I was a very sad kid before I knew d- the word depression. Um, I, I wanted to die and, um, and, and, you know, I was the most depressed person in the world. Um, and this cop came to my school in fifth grade for a dare assembly. And he said, um, uh, he, he, basically explained that, that heroin was the worst drug because it makes you not have any feelings. And I thought like, that's exactly what I need. Um, so uh, that, that kind of got me on the, on the course. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the weight of air is an interesting title. Can you talk about what that means to you without giving away too much of the book? Is that possible? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny you should ask um, the title. I sat down to write this book um and i called it the kick when i started Mm. because you know for me it was like just this is a very long saga of kicking um you know heroin and when i sold the book uh and i hadn't thought about it like i just i called it the kick i wasn't thinking that was necessarily the name but like you know that was that um so when i sold the book and the publisher was talking about like you know the kick people might see that in a bookstore and that could mean soccer for some people Mm. um and if it means heroin, like you're leaving out all of the depression and it's really not a book about heroin addiction. So maybe we want to come up with something else. Um, and I didn't have any ideas. And uh, and so, you know, we had a, a ton of conversations and like, I can't take that stuff seriously. So I'm going like, what about like 50 recipes for your next, you know, afternoon <laughs> tea party or something? Um, and, uh, and, and so she came up with the weight of air because uh, from a lot of the things that I say in the book, and there's, there's this kind of theme of um not being able to breathe and suffocating and drowning and you know that kind of thing and and the difference that um you know that that heroin made uh when i started using it that i I was able to breathe so the the weight of air was just kind of the how heavy um life always uh you know felt right and and so uh David had, had, you know, we got linked up on social media somehow and, and we talked and, you know, he, he sends me this book 
And, and I'm like, is there an audio book? Right? Like, I, I'm <laughs> well, there not, is now. I there is no, now. There yeah. is now. Right. Right. At the time, there was not. Um, and, and I was like, man, I, I generally don't find time to read. Right. And it just so <laughs> happened we took a vacation. It was to a beach. And there was an entire, like, flooded out day. And we all just sat around the house. And I was like, Oh, what the hell? I'm going to read this book. And I literally read the entire book that day. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, my thought at the time was I'll just start it, but it, it, it got a hold of me a little bit. Right. I, I think the storytelling in it is, um, I, I, at least from somebody who has been through the detox process, it, it was very relatable, right? I, I could yeah. remember and picture myself in, in some of the scenes you were talking about. And, and then as it kept going on, I, I really, I started to want to know what happened. I'm like, well, where does this go? Right. What, what happens to this guy? Right. Um, and then, you know, getting, getting towards the end and maybe like the, the three quarter mark and towards the end, there starts to become a lot of really good points and it's no longer just a, a book and a story that I'm reading about some, you know, random guy. It became a book about, you know, harm reduction methods and, <laughs> And and maybe I don't even know that I want to call them harm reduction methods, but just like, are we living miserably still, even though we've found abstinence or, or, or is there still an underlying problem? And, uh, you know, I, I don't even know where to begin with some of the, the quotes that really gripped me, but, but one for sure, this idea that alcohol is not legal because it's safer. Alcohol is safer because it's legal. And, yeah. and, you know, the implication behind that. Do you want to talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's true. Um, I think, you know, most of most people, I mean, I, I, you know, you'd have to be pretty old to be, you know, young in, in the uh, prohibition era when alcohol was illegal. <laughs> but, um, you know, so we don't really have a memory of that. But everything that, that I've read and, and I'm aware of, um, people were dying left and right during prohibition because for the same reason that people are dying now. You don't know what you're, put, you're putting in your body, right? So like legal regulated, I mean, look, it's like 93 or 97, some like ridiculous uh, percent of overdose fatalities um, happen with illicit drugs because you have no idea what you're putting in your body. So like, you know, if you come over to my house, and, I mean, I don't drink, but like uh, I, I've got two pint glasses of alcohol here and, you know, one of them is methanol and one of them um, is hard seltzer and you don't know which one is which, you're going to die if you drink the wrong one. Like that's mm -hmm. just a fact. So when something is legal and regulated, that's never going to happen. But when it's not, that's going to happen all day, every day. And, and that's precisely what's going on. So alcohol, the potent, you know, if overdose, not if, overdose is an overly potent dose. I mean, that's what it is, right? So you can't prevent an overly potent dose when you don't know the potency of what you're dosing. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, the consistent potency of, of alcohol, I mean, there's alcohol laws, al the harm of alcohol is, is, you know, reduced because of the loss. And, you know, the other thing that I think people forget, like, you know, we have this kind of baked into our collective consciousness that like drugs are so terrible and they're, and they're, you know, they're legal because they're dangerous. And they're so bad. Um, you know, the entire opioid category, they, um, they slow down your central nervous system. That's how they kill you, right? They, you stop breathing because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a CNS depressant. Alco so, so that's, that's the danger of opioids and constipation. Um, <laughs> Alcohol will shut down every organ in your body, right? right? So you've got central nervous system, and then you've got every organ in your, like all other drugs in the fucking world can't cause that much harm. 
Um, but alcohol can. And alcohol, you know, I mean, heroin withdrawal was brutal. And I think everybody uh, who's, who's experienced it agrees. Um, and you wish it for death a lot, but, um, but you know, it, it, it's not going to kill you. Whereas alcohol is so addictive that um, you can die in withdrawal. So, you know, alcohol is the most dangerous substance on the planet. I mean, it's more addictive than anything else. It'll kill you in more ways. Like, it, it's horrifying how, how stupid bad for you alcohol is. But, you know, it's everywhere. It's, it's ubiquitous and it's fine. And like, you know, people like my mom is kind of this yardstick for America because, I, you know, I want to believe that she's more educated than most just by virtue of being, you know, my mom. But, but she slipped back into that, you know, I mean, I've only been like this was all I didn't talk about this until two years ago so you know it's easier for her to slip back to the thing and so um I had this friend who who died from overdose last Christmas and he was you know I mean the last of my friends that that died um and so and she said you know it's really sad but he obviously I mean look he didn't care about himself it's accidental overdose he you fucked up he wasn't careful and I was like okay so when when you're drinking a glass of wine um if if you poured a glass of wine and it turned out that it was, you know, could, could you drink the equivalent of like 33 glasses of wine and one glass of wine or would you die? And she was like, I would totally die. So w- what if that happens to you? And she's like, that's not going to happen to me. And so she like basically goes through the argument for me. You know, it's not going to happen because I buy it at the liquor store and it's sealed and I take the cork out and it's, you know, regulated and all this stuff. And it's like, that doesn't mean that alcohol is safer. That means that there are safeguards that prevent you from dying from fucking alcohol poisoning because of alcohol loss. Um, nobody can argue that something is going to be safer if it's, if it's illegal. I mean, you know, there are cheeses that are illegal in the United States because they contain, you know, like maggot particles and they're going to like perforate your organs or something like, um, you know, or, or, you know, a few years ago with the Listeria outbreak um, with cantaloupe or a few years ago with, uh, you know, in, in Mozambique when people were dying from toxic beer, like legalization and regulation is people are dying from illicit drugs there's no amount of like regulations and prayer and prison and all this bullshit. Like that's not going to stop people. People have been using drugs before written language. So the idea that like, we're going to stop people from using drugs. Like, why don't we just make drugs safer? Like, why is that so fucking terrible? Um, mm. So sorry. Um, it's, it's no, no. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's what I mean, you're it's, here it's, for. It's yeah. unconscionable to me that these, you know, there are the opioids that are in, um, uh, you know, pharmacies right now. You've got, you know, dilated morphine, all, all of these opioids. The DEA put out this thing a few weeks ago. It's, it's this one pill can kill campaign. Did you see this? <laughs> these motherfuckers no, are, they're, they're saying the only safe pills are dispensed in pharmacies, right? So if you're going to use opioids, it's got to come from a pharmacy. It's the only safe pills. Everybody knows that. Um, these counterfeit pills have never been a bigger problem. They're everywhere over the past two years. It's exploded. We can't keep them, you know, we can't contain them and they're killing people left and right and blah, 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 right? So the counterfeit pill problem started when the DEA started uh, tightening restrictions on um, on prescription opioids. Like, mm-hmm. is it really a surprise that you can't get these? So people are getting these. I mean, like they created this monster and now they're blaming the cartels. It's like it, it seems to me that if you want people to not die from toxic, illicit drugs, why don't you make the safe drugs available? Like, it, it, I mean, I, I just I don't get it. Like. We, we have this myth of um, legalization leads to widespread use, which is not true and has been disproven all over the place. And if anybody doesn't believe that, like it's easy to debunk it yourself. Like nobody loads up on beer every time they're at the gas station and nobody seems to know anybody who's going to start using meth or heroin if it was legal. So all these people that are going to start using, like nobody can name one. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's like we're so afraid of, we're more horrified by the idea of people using legal regulated drugs then we're horrified by the people dying from from the illicit drugs, and and that's I just don't get it. 
Well, and not only that, but now they're making it harder to get pain medications when you are in like oh, yeah. legitimate pain for legitimate medical reasons. It's yeah, harder a, now to get pain pills than ever. Like there, yes, people there, there, there are many, many documented um, uh, cases of suicide where people are, are, are killing themselves because there's people in hospice that aren't allowed to get um, opioids. I mean, you know, it's been, I mean, look, I don't want to get into like the whole Purdue Pharma, um, you know, bullshit, but like it's been proven a million times over that this crisis is not a result of somebody was prescribed OxyContin and five minutes later they're on heroin. Like that, that's not what's going on here. Um, it's poison drugs. People are dying because our drug supply, our illicit drug supply is poison. Until we replace those drugs with safer drugs, people are going to keep dying. Like there, there's just no way around it. And if you have this conversation with, with somebody who, you know, like my mom can't have a rational conversation. Look, fear isn't rational. So nobody can have a rational conversation if they're afraid of drugs. But like, if you, if you use any analogy, like, um, you know, if caffeine was illegal and 300 people were dying every day from coffee and we could either go after cartels and blame, you know, people in foreign countries and, and all of that kind of crap, or we could make the caffeinated beverages that we've restricted just make that shit available to people like I, I can't think of any lawmaker that would be like no 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 we're much better off spending 48 billion dollars a year going after uh, you know the, the people in mexico and 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 all that crap i mean the, the war on drugs right now we're spending 48 billion dollars a year on interdiction alone so forget about treatment and all of that kind of stuff right so 48 billion dollars if we were to stop that um right now shut the DD, dea down legalize and regulate drugs so it's clean drugs going out right and tax and sell them like alcohol it would be a 108 billion dollar net swing every year so like you have to hate people and money in order to want to do that and all the people that are like i'm sick of paying for all these you know drug programs like i blah 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 it's like those guys should be the first people on board um for legalization and regulation but you know it, it's it's like we're we're all kind of um you know i mean i think just most people don't it, it's so baked into our collective conscious that they, most people find it, you know, you, I, I say these things to people and they're like, that can't possibly be true. And then they look them up and they're like, oh my God, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I recently read a, another book called Sapiens, a uh, brief history of humanity or something like that. And mm -hmm. it talks a lot about how all these things we take for granted are myths. And, and most of them are based on a christian religion so to speak right the, the i mean money's a myth uh the idea of equality honestly is a myth fairness justice they're all myths that we've created like they don't exist in science and, and in the animal kingdom um and, and i do i think we have harped on to this idea and latched on to drugs are bad okay right and, and we're just yeah, stuck absolutely. there i mean look if we didn't moralize drugs we would see that the moral failure is the way that we're treating drug users i mean mm -hmm. you know I'm morally object to uh, to harm reduction. Like, really? Uh, you don't like seatbelts either? I mean, come on, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, so uh, one of the quotes that I, I found interesting, and maybe this will lead into a question for me, is addiction isn't an automatic result of exposure to opioids. Compulsive use is driven by the relief they provide. That's the draw. Painkillers kill pain. Opioids don't know or care if you have a prescription or whether your pain is physical or emotional. They flood your brain with dopamine and serotonin and bind to your opiate receptors. So if addiction isn't the automatic result of exposure to opioids, where does it come from? What is it? Um, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I've noticed lately, um, 
that addiction is such a kind of word that people assume that everybody means the same thing. Ah. And I find that in, in a lot of conversations that I'm having with people, I'll like kind of stop in the middle and say like, I, I mean, look, everybody can look up addiction in the dictionary and it says compulsive mm. use despite negative consequences. Right. But um, if you say to somebody like, what do you think addiction means? Everybody's definition is very, very different. Um, I'm finding. And so the idea that like uh, addiction as we are, you know, as it's predominantly treated um, in America right now, we treat it with sobriety, with abstinence, right? Um, so, so when I'm saying, uh, you know, addiction isn't isn't a result of uh, these these drugs don't, you know, they, they don't hook you. I mean, like, you know, my mom had cancer twice. She had all kinds of surgery. She was prescribed all kinds of opioids. Um, the pain went away. She stopped taking them, right? So, if you've got hip replacement surgery and you get two weeks of, you know, Percocet or or two minutes, you know, these days, and then you're still taking it after after the pain is gone, you're taking it to kill some other kind of pain. Right. So opiate receptors regulate your physical pain and, and emotional pain. I mean, they do the same thing, whether whether you're depressed and, and it's emotional pain or whether, you know, your foot got chopped off. So this idea that sobriety is the answer, it, it, it's bullshit. I mean, I'm not saying go out and, and use drugs and everybody should be on drugs. Um, not at all. But if you think about it, like addiction, the medical condition, right? So like, let's say you drink a bunch of alcohol for, you know, however many years and you're addicted to alcohol. Um, you stop drinking alcohol, you go through the detox. I don't know how long that takes, but whatever it is, like the booze is out of your system. Your alcohol addiction is over. You're no longer addicted, right? Physically addicted. Um, you are sober, you're abstaining, you know, that's that. So that's the cure, right? Compulsive drug use, compulsive behavior is a mental health disorder. So um, if I'm compulsively taking painkillers to kill pain. Um, it's no different than, you know, the OCD guy who, who, you know, turns the doorknob 87 times or else, you know, my grandmother's going to die of, uh, you know, uh, an anvil's going to fall out of the sky uh, and hit my grandmother if I don't, you know, do this. So he can stop turning the doorknob. He's sober, he's abstaining, but he still wants to turn the doorknob and he still thinks his grandmother's going to die. Like mm -hmm. I can stop taking, if my foot got chopped off and I stopped taking painkillers, like nobody in their right mind is going to be like, your foot got chopped off because you're on morphine. Um, the pain is only going to stop when you stop taking the painkillers. Like we have these ideas that like are completely like biologically fucking insane. Um, but for whatever reason, we, we think that they're true. So like, you know, sobriety is hard um, because pain doesn't stop when you stop taking uh, painkillers. It gets worse. And we know that. And we're making this false promise to people in rehab um, you know, sobri your, your sobriety is going to be better. You're going to love it. You know, everything's going to be great. It's going to solve all your problems. And it doesn't. And, and, you know, people are relapsing all over the place. And it's really, you know, very tragic because we're, we're leading people to believe that, you know, sobriety. So it's like we're treating addiction, the, the physical, the cure to the, med to the physical medical condition, um, sobriety, does not, is in no way the cure to the compulsive disorder. But we're treating it as such. And that, I think, is is kind of the fundamental flaw in, in, in what we've got going on right now. Do you want to argue oh. that? I know you do. <laughs> well, Who's I mean, there? I don't want to argue it. I guess. Wait, can so I, can my I just understanding... add one more thing? Sure. Sobriety doesn't get easier with time. Um, with doesn't necessarily get easier with opioids because it's the only type of substance um, that has a natural target in your brain and takes hold with that kind of ferocity. So... You know, there are all these studies that show, uh, you know, you quit playing blackjack, you quit drinking, anything else, any vice, any substance, 
um, your neurotransmitters rewire over time. There's studies that are, you know, 50 years out that they don't rewire over time. So, you know, for me, like I spent so much of my life being miserable and feeling bad that I was miserable because I had it so good and all that kind of crap. Like if I, if I can choose between suffering and not suffering, I'm going to take not suffering 10 times out of 10. And like when my, you know, my mom doesn't want me to be on buprenorphine, it's like, do you want me to be productive and happy? Or do you want me to be pure in my body and miserable and jumping off a roof every five seconds? I mean, like, what's the objective here? So anyway, sorry, please refute. That's okay. No, and, it, and it's not a refute. I think this is where Jason and I sometimes have a, uh, I don't know, difference of opinion. But for me, like my experience is I don't, other than being an addict, I was an addict on heroin for years. I spent time in jail, all those sorts of things. And I got off through an abstinence-based 12-step program, and that's been where my recovery is. And Great. it's worked for me, but when I went to the 12-step fellowship, I guess one of the, I guess, core tenets of what was explained to me or what's a foundation of my recovery is just that what you just talked about is that just stopping the drugs isn't the problem. Like drugs are right. just a symptom of my underlying condition yes. and that I need to address some of those other things. And like for myself, like I've never been diagnosed with like a clinical depression or that sort of mental illness. I was sexually abused as a kid. So I had some trauma there. Um, was, and yeah. as, as I got into recovery, I was able to address some of those things and deal with some of those issues. So like for me, I don't even solve that problem though. I'm sorry. Sobriety uh, wasn't the cure for all of your trauma. No, uh, abstinence wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it didn't. Right. It didn't just fix when I was in abstinence. It took sure. the work through a twelve-step fellowship. But I don't think right. that works for everyone because people's yeah. level of trauma is different, and some people suffer Absolutely. from like depression or things that are going to be lifelong versus things that can be treated through maybe therapy or counseling. Or in my case, yeah. I just got lucky with. I mean, because I realized. 12-step recovery is really dependent on the quality of the people you have in your life, um, what yeah. you're willing to, to kind of work you're willing to do on yourself, you know, and those well, sorts of yeah. things. I mean, it, right. I mean, you know, I, 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 I would never discourage somebody from doing anything that works for them. Um, I know people who, who love AA. I'm truly happy that it works for you. Like, that's great. Um, I think my problem with it is it's not, a, you know, this is a this is a medical condition and so there's really no other medical condition that says cozy up to god don't take any medicine um forget about the science and you'll be fine like um you know god we've known that that god hasn't cured you know diseases since like bubonic plague um so it just seems kind of you know preposterous that 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 would be a responsible waiting. Like, I guess what I'm saying is if it works, great. If it doesn't, we shouldn't be telling people like you're a fucking asshole because this isn't right. working for you. Like it's your problem, you know? And, and that was what happened with me. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm a crazy person um, in denial and uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And it's like, I mean, you know, look, I, I'm not going to blame anybody for my decisions and my actions. Um, but I'm pretty sure that, things would have been very different had I gone to rehab and, and instead of saying depression's an excuse, uh, you know, you're full of shit and static mentality. If my counselor would have said, Oh my God, you're depressed. We should really deal with that because in the absence, I mean, look, without medical credentials, which is what is going on here with these, you know, in 46 States, you can, you can be a, a, an expert, um, you know, treatment counselor and you don't even have to have 
graduated from high school. So the idea that like you've got medical experts without medical credentials pushing a cure that involves, you know, basically prayer and, and, a, and a, you know, anonymous support group, um, that for any other medical condition, like that's literally the definition of quack medicine. So these guys are actually, if, if, if addiction is a medical condition and these guys don't have any medical credentials, then they're actually not qualified to diagnose, treat, or, um, you know, even uh, manage um, any, any medical conditions, which, or mental health, which includes addiction, depression, um, and so forth. So if it works for you, that's great. Like, and, 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 and we should be happy. And, and, um, but that, that is more of a fluke. I mean, like if, you know, somebody who, who has cancer and goes to one of those witch doctors in, um, you know, some foreign land and it cures their cancer, it's not proof that that works. It's, it worked for this guy and that's great, you know, um, and, and we should celebrate that. Well, and I, I know like you've used the example of like diabetes and I just to kind of go that route, like we know diabetes can be treated with medications and stuff if you're a diabetic, sure. but you can also change diet, exercise and do some yeah. other healthy things that will work as well. Yeah. Um, I, and I kind of look church. at addiction I mean, as the same, like you can, if you look and find a path that works for you, like recovery, from my understanding, should be like you're the author of your own life and you should have some input and say into your recovery path and what you want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do agree, like treatment centers shouldn't just tell everyone like, hey, abstinence is what you need to do and you need to come in and get abstinent and go to 12 step meetings like that'll work. Um, yeah. For me personally, I think that actually doesn't help um, me as a member of 12 step fellowships, having all these people pushed into a program that they don't really want to be in anyway. Um, yeah. I think that contributes to the failure rate is that there's a lot of people there that don't want to be there. They've just been told this is what you have to do, or this is what you're supposed to do. And they don't want to do it. So it doesn't work for yeah. them. <laughs> no. And, and the stakes are very high at this point because, you know, the highest risk of, of overdose obviously is when um, you're completely yeah. clean because you have no tolerance and the highest, the other highest risk of overdose is when you're using illicit drugs because you have no idea what you're putting in your body. So, you know, if I go to AA because that's what I'm supposed to do and I'm sober and abstinent and then a week later, I'm like, shit, this is a bad idea. Um, and now I can't get on buprenorphine because I, or methadone because I don't have dope in my system and I'm kind of freaking out and I just need to clear my head and I go out and score like I'm dead. And that happens all the time. I mean, there was this JAMA study. I mean, there, there have been a bunch, but there was one in particular last um, either January or, or April um, by uh, Dr. Sarah Wakeman. Um, was the lead on it. And, and it basically said that like, if you, so medically assisted treatment in, in either form um, reduces the risk of overdose relapse and death by like 79%. Um, faith and abstinence-based inpatient rehab increases those risks in almost as close a percent. Um, if you find out your kid is on drugs and you say, look, we don't want you to use drugs. Um, we really wish you wouldn't, but we got you a bunch of Narcan. Please don't use alone you know, whatever, um, they have a better chance of being alive in six months than if you send them to rehab. And, you know, parents like contact me all the time for advice. And, you know, I tell them I'm not a doctor and all of that. And, I, and I'll, you know, kind of quote this, this study, um, you know, and, and it's an empirical study, like it's not like, a, you know, I mean, it's science. Um, so, you know, most parents will say to me, like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, I don't want my kid using drugs. Like, what are you telling me? Do you want me to tell my kid to use drugs? Like, why am I going to do that? And it's like, I'm not asking you if you want your kid to use drugs. I'm asking if you want your kid to be alive because here are your options. You know, um, 
like that that's the likelihood so um you know i i don't know i i, I think it, as you said like we have to recognize that every i mean look everybody is different like it's it's crazy to think that there would be a universal treatment modality when we know that everybody's different we know that each type of substance affects our neural pathways differently like there's so many variables involved the idea that like one thing would work for everybody and it's it's not even a scientific thing um you know is kind of is kind of crazy so um you know we 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 should make all these options available and especially now like when people are dying like this i mean look the fact that I call methadone clinics every couple of months um, all over the country. I'm on a bunch of waiting lists. I've been on some waiting lists for like 16, 18 months at this point. I'm like, it's fucking crazy, you know? Um, you can't get buprenorphine. Like it, it's, you know, we've got to, we've got to make treatment more available. I and mean, we're spending, uh, you know, 40 whatever billion dollars on, on interdiction, which is going after the, the bad drugs. So like, it's easy, you know, you can, like you, you can get anything delivered to your house, uh, you know, like that. But you can't get you can't get treatment that fast. I mean, like, what are we doing here? Yeah, we are in a small rural community, and finding doctors that will actually prescribe buprenorphine is very difficult. Like, it's yeah. it's really difficult to get, you know, yeah. doctors. Um, one of our sponsors, Voices of Hope, is a community organization in this area, and they have tried to like partner up with different doctors and and methadone clinics to help people like say at, at the biggest the highest at risk are the people coming out of treatment people you know that coming out of jails and institutions that could use those substances you know what i mean to use the yeah. medications to help them through those difficult times and it's you can't find doctors that want to prescribe it because it's a i guess stigma yeah. or, or it, the fear yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, you know, and if you, where are you, where are you, what's your rural? We're in Cecil uh, County, Maryland. So we're sort okay. of right off the 95 corridor between like Baltimore and Philadelphia. Have you, um, you know, Ophelia might uh, have people in your area. It's um, a telehealth company. Um, I'll, I, I can check it out uh, after. Yeah, they have um, one local doctor they've been working with now and the yeah. telehealth, they were hoping to open, you know, when, COVID came yeah. and actually opened up some of that a little more to make yeah. it a little easier. So. Well, it, it, it did. I mean, I, you know, I think the, the challenge with, I mean, when, when the laws changed, when they opened it up a few months ago of, um, you know, any DEA licensed doctor can, can prescribe buprenorphine to 10 patients. The problem with that, you know, it sounds great, but the problem with it is, um, you know, doctor, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean that you're an expert on, you know, every toenail fungus and you can, you know, remove pancreatic cancer and, uh, and treat buprenorphine. Um, so, you know, like if you became a doctor because you want to do, you know, doctors without borders or, or you're, um, you know, interested in, uh, uh, being a plastic surgeon or whatever it is, like, that doesn't mean that you want, um, you know, uh, uh people who are addicted to heroin knocking on your door saying like, Hey, you can prescribe buprenorphine, you know, give it to me right now. And there, there is a lot of stigma like there, you know, I mean, I know actual doctors who believe things about addiction that are like so fucking insane but they go to medical school i mean look addiction has been siloed off from science and medicine for so long because aa has been the brand you know and it's been around since the 30s and so you know that was what you do and they had the monopoly i mean you know that's why rehab is you know uh not an hospital um <clears throat> so like a lot of assumptions are made that just aren't true they i mean you know i know an emergency room doctor who went to a very good medical school um and spent a lot of time there after. And he said they learned about addiction for about 30 minutes, right? In in all of medical school. Um, and I mean, you know, it's just, it's like, uh, there's a million and a half licensed physicians in America right now. 
of that million and a half, 1,183 are certified in addiction medicine. So if there's you know, 20 or 40 million people that are struggling with opioid addiction right now, on top of the underlying conditions of you know, whatever mental health disorder, trauma, uh, you know, depression, and so forth that they have, um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, the, the ratio is like um, one uh, doctor for every like 36,000 people who are struggling with addiction. Like, are we really gonna solve this problem that way? I mean, you know, in your rural Maryland town, I'm sure that you could find, you know, five specialists for some a very obscure form of toenail fungus, you know, no problem. Um, <laughs> but you can't find a buprenorphine doctor and it's the leading cause of death right now. Great. You know, uh, something that came up for me when you guys were having that little discussion about that, like, just imagine, and and I get that we're a little biased from our own anecdotal evidence, right? That like this worked for us. So yeah, there's got to be some credence to it, right? Right, right. But if my kid got cancer, right, and there was an FDA approved cure that worked for five to to 10% of people. And an FDA cure that worked for 79% of people. Yeah, what are you going to go with? Which one do you think I'm going to give them, right? And, and I feel like that's my thing. It's not so much that I, that, that I don't think 12 steps can work or an abstinence-based program can work. Yeah, I think it can. But no. if I'm going to send people somewhere, like I want to give them the COVID vaccine that works 80% of the time, not the one that works 5 to 10% of the time. And I'm not going to take my chances on suggesting right. the 5 to 10% of the time one. To people and, and well, i get it like it doesn't feel good because that's what worked for us but that's sure, but you're I mean, acting like that being on a medication doesn't come with any kind of side effects and i think any medication comes with a certain absolutely. side effects i mean absolutely. there are always side like i, I just there, for myself yeah. this is just me like i'm yeah. a, i guess you would call it like a naturalist person like i went to the doctor yeah. about two years ago they told me i had high cholesterol and that i could get on cholesterol medication or i could change my diet and exercise right. so i said i'm gonna diet and exercise i'm gonna go Good that route because not that that medication can't fix it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with people that do it. Great. If that's what you need and you don't want to change, uh, well, but, no judgment on that. I'm just picking what I think is right for me based on yeah. I don't want those side effects. And, and that's, well, I, I mean, you know, like yeah. for, for me, I mean, you know, I, I, I say this a lot and, and like it kind of freaks people out. But like I don't want to be taking anything like ever. I didn't want to be taking heroin. Like I, I don't want to have to take something in order to function. Like I want to wake up in the morning and just go. I, I don't, I don't want to have to remember shit. I don't want to go to the doctor once a month. I don't want to go to the drugstore. Like I, I, I don't want it. Um, I know for myself that I'm gonna completely fucking fall apart if I stop taking buprenorphine. I haven't, you know, tried to uh, whittle it down lately. I, d- I did a few years ago. It was, it was, it was miserable. I mean, I, you know. And so maybe I'll do it again. Maybe I won't. Um, as far as the side effects go, like, you know, there are people who have whatever issues that they have. I haven't heard of anything that's, um, that, would, that would make anybody stop using other than somebody who was on a very high dose um, and got headaches. But like opioids all by themselves in the long term, constipation is, is the only problem. Like they shut, you know, the, the CNS depression problem is obviously a problem, but a person could be on pure heroin or, you know, synthetic buprenorphine or whatever it is for the rest of their lives and theoretically not have any kind of, um, you know, other side effects. So, and everybody's different and that's fine. I know for me, the side effect of not being on buprenorphine is that my opiate receptors are not, um, you know, saturated with what they need. And so because depression is, you know, it's, it's a degenerative biological condition, 
my opiate receptors multiplied like everybody else's with every dose, whether you have a prescription or not, that's just what they do. So I've got a bajillion more receptors than I had when I was 16 when I started using heroin. And I know that like, I can't function unless I'm opiated. And, and I get that like, we don't like that and society wants you to be abstinent. My mom wants me to be abstinent. You know, my wife wanted me to be abstinent for a while and all that crap. But like, what it really comes down to, and you know, I, I mean, I was very ashamed. I mean, I didn't tell anybody I was on buprenorphine for 10 years. It, it, was, it was really um, shameful for me. But it, at this point, it's like, what it comes down to for me is there are no side effects that I'm experiencing. I get that that might not be the case for other people. Um, I'm miserable without it and I don't want to be miserable. So, you know, and, and, and I mean, any of the, like, you know, it's just as bad as heroin and, and all that kind of crap. Like, I don't think I look like I'm nodding off and drooling and I'm, you know, not like going around stealing your VCR and shit. Like, so, you know, and, and right. I mean, anybody who thinks it's just as bad as heroin, like ask for it after your next, uh, you know, knee surgery and let me know how that works out. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. To, uh, yeah. to speak to the constipation for anybody who has never <laughs> used heroin and is listening, I came off a short uh, heroin use run. That was what we call it uh, back then, at least. And uh, I had a bowel movement, you know, from not having a bowel movement for quite some time. And, and, and it was so impressive that I literally had to go get my father. This was before camera <laughs> phones. I literally had to make him come up and look at it. I was like, dude, this is not human. <laughs> it was it was That's crazy. <laughs> so was I, I hear what you're saying. Did- did he know you were on you were on dope at the time? No, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Uh, he he might have did after that. <laughs> yeah, he might have known after that. Uh, wow. I mean, it looked like something a horse would do. It was it was crazy. Um, Jesus. How, how long so, had it been before you? Uh, like, what was? The, I don't do think it had been that long. I think it had only been like a week or two. Like a week, but it was yeah, a week or two. And I just oh my uh, god, you've gone two weeks without pooping before? Oh, I went thirty days, but that was a whole different reason. I was <laughs> uh, I was smoking crack. And I wasn't eating all day, every day, except oh, at the end yeah. of the night, mm-hmm. I would eat a mustard sandwich because that was the only thing I could get down. Yeah. And then after 30 days, it was still like gerbil pellets. It was ridiculous. It was like nothing. So what did you do about that? Nothing. <laughs> nothing I mean, nothing. I, I assume you're not still on crack. No, no, I'm not. Uh, no, I went Stop I went crack. the 12-step route too. I just... Uh, yeah. uh, well, I, let me let me say, this. Billy. Uh, so yeah, you you talk about the cholesterol, and and yes, you know, there are other methods. But if you were if you got cancer, and they said, hey, if you do nothing, there's a five to ten percent chance of that being a survival, right? If you do nothing or or, or just do these healthy practices, and there's no side effects, or there's this eighty percent effective treatment that might have a side effect or two, which one are you going with? Like, I, I just, I, I get it. We have our hearts tied into this 12-step thing, but I really think when we step back. I mean, this is the leading cause of right, right. You're going to fucking die. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, at least for me personally, like, I don't feel like my choice of abstinence is any 
Like, I don't have any side effects other than I can't get high, which I really miss. Like, that's that's about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I I mean, I think, you know, I I think that's the thing with with um, with anything that anybody does. I mean, look, I'm obviously biased toward this. I I started on buprenorphine. I mean, you know, when when I wrote this book and got an agent, one of the first conversations we had was um, about my unconventional path to recovery because buprenorphine was not the gold standard. AA was, and I was some crazy fucking kookadoo talking crazy shit. And she was saying like, you know, science has to catch up with this at some point. Like there's gotta be a day where like people are going to be like, Oh my God, this shit actually works because clearly it does. Um, You know, so it's nice for me to be able to have this conversation from the perspective of 79% and all that, like, you know, that's great. This works for me. Oh, and here are the statistics. Um, You know, whereas you're in a different spot, but it worked for you. So your convictions are um, just as strong as mine. And if it's the two of us, like, I'm not going to convince you to do this. And you're not going to convince me to do that because it worked for both of us. So if it's another person off to the side, um, you know, I mean, as far as this conversation of like, you know, if you're, if, I mean, look, if, if my kid had cancer, like, I don't give a shit what I'm doing. I'm going to the, you know, the thing, um, to the, to the one that works. Um, but you know, but that, that's just me. If I had, done the witch doctor approach and it worked, I would try the witch doctor approach, you know, no question. Um, but for, for most people, I think it's reasonable to say, you know, look, this is what I did. This is what he did. It worked for him. It worked for me. We're different people. It worked for different reasons. This might work for you. You might like this. You might not like that. If you don't want to take any medicine and you want your body to be, um, you know, clean and you want to try this route and whatever, and, and it works for you, like, great, do it. If it doesn't try this. If you think you want to try that, then that doesn't work. Like, you know, do this. But um, but the idea that like we're, we're I mean, you know, there, there wasn't there was an AA um, uh, group in Syracuse, New York that um, I mean, you know, everything that I read about it, like they were calling them militant, which I'm not really sure what that means. But the members were shaming people. Um, you know, you can't take antidepressants like there's a whole, you know, litany of things that you're not allowed to take. So somebody was on Wellbutrin and they were like, you're not uh, sober, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he was like, shit, I'll stop taking it, stop taking it. And, and the guy killed himself. Um, and this has happened a few times in this, in this AA, um, you know, faction. And so I think the, the bottom line is, um, that's not okay. And that's just as not okay as somebody like me saying, you got to try this stuff. It's the only shit that works. Look, 79%. It's the, you know, gold standard, blah, blah, blah. Don't even listen to these bastards because they don't know what they're talking about. And look at these numbers and, you know, whatever, like, you know, if, if I'm shaming somebody out of trying that, it's just as bad as, as um, you know, what, what's going on. I mean, I guess it's, there is a difference in the sense that like, you know, with the non you know, medical part or whatever, but um, I mean, e- either way, it's like, you know, everybody's different. Um, well, and I guess my hope is that like, so this community organization, my wife actually started it. It's called Voices of Hope. And the idea with that, and she's abstinence-based recovery that's what her recovery was in. But the organization yeah. itself is like all pathways of recovery. And the idea is that people can come there and they focus more on person centered care. Like That's when great. people come there, they say, Hey, what do you what do you need? You know, do you want to get on a maintenance program, we can do that. They actually just partnered up with a methadone program that they started in their facility for people that want to go that way. But like abstinence is also a path that some people want. They have people that come there that say, Hey, I've been on methadone for 10 years. I've been on, you know, Suboxone for several years. I'd like to get off. And they're having difficulties in some of these clinics because the clinics are set up in a way that says, well, if you can't pay, 
we can get you off in seven days or 10 days. But if you want to get off medically, we can only reduce you like five milligrams a week for so and so many weeks. And it just seems they feel like they're trapped. And so, you know, they want to offer people different pathways of recovery, different options, because ultimately recovery is up to the individual. A person isn't going to do what they don't want to do. They'll try it. But me personally, like I think the medical field, like we sort of look at 12 step and want to blame them for where they're at. But I think they only got such a powerful position because the medical community dropped the ball. Medical community didn't want to address people with addiction. They didn't want to deal with it. They just wanted to shame people and push them away. So they found these rooms in these basements where they could go and they started helping each other. And now I think where we're at. I, I, I don't trust the medical community at all. I haven't, I've had shitty experiences with most of the doctors that I've seen. Um, the minute it turns out that I've stuck needles of dope in my arm, uh, you know, I'm some kind of scumbag and, and, and I don't like that. And I think that there's all kinds of, you know, bullshit medicine. Go- like, I don't trust a lot of things about medicine. Um, what happened in, in America that, you know, gave rise to all of these programs, like the 1914 Harrison Act, when opioids were um, available by prescription for physical pain only, there were a lot of people that were, I mean, you know, look, uh, one in 200 Americans were addicted to opioids at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so we had a, I mean, this exact problem that we have right now was going on a hundred years ago, minus the overdoses. Um, and so how they handled that was uh, addiction was believed to be an incurable moral defect, right? So um, there were doctors who felt bad for the, you know, these incurable moral you know, failures, um, and they and, and also want to make money. So they set up these uh, basically clinics that were, their idea was we're going to give um, opioid, addict, I mean, it was heroin at the time, or morphine. So we're, we're going to give these guys morphine and heroin, um, and that will keep them off the streets, and they won't be, you know, stealing your shit, and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and it worked, but the government didn't like that. Um, so they started shutting them down, and those like farms that sprung up. So doctors weren't allowed to like doctors were getting busted and going to jail for treating the junkies. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what was going on with, with alcoholism um, back then. I mean, obviously AA was, uh, you know, built on the, on, on you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but uh, you know, it, it seemed like any doctors that wanted to help were um, gotten a shit ton of trouble for it. So, so it was more government intervention that, yeah, yeah. I mean, up. like, they, yeah, they, they, they were throwing them in jail. And, and you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, whether it's, whether it's the government didn't like the junkies or, you know, it doesn't really matter. The bottom line is that I would think that most doctors didn't care about junkies because, you know, at the time we were incurable moral defects. So why would they, right? I mean, you know, really. So, um, so the small handful of, of doctors who cared enough to do something the message they were given was like, you're a fucking asshole and we're going to take your life away from you. So that's a very easy way to kind of level the playing field and make sure that there's not a doctor in America that cares about people who are on drugs. Right. If you ask me. So you, you mentioned another thing, David, about how difficult it was to get prescribed Suboxone or, or buprenorphine, I should say. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the government restrictions... Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it was especially hard because I, um, I was coming off of a, re- like, so I relapsed um, and I knew that I had to do something. Like I, I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't stand drugs, but it was very, very short. Like I had, 
you know, days worth of, of um, you know, Percocet. And then I stopped, you know, um, I don't want to give away anything in the book, but the moral of the story is I didn't end up um, thinking about buprenorphine until like two weeks later. And I, my system was totally clean. Like I had, I had no drugs in my body. Um, and so there were six buprenorphine doctors within like 200 miles of my house. I mean, you know, this is 2008, so there's no opioid crisis yet. And, um, and I called them, you know, I went down the list and one by one, they were like, well, you need to have drugs in your system for us to treat you. That's the law. Uh, and I explained the obvious paradox to all of them, you know, being that if I have to go out and score, I'm not coming to see you. Um, so please help me. Uh, and one by one, they all said no. And when I got to the last guy, I was just like, look, man, I mean, I have a two-year-old daughter. And do you really want my blood on your hands? Um, and, he, and he agreed. And, uh, you know, since then, or not really since then, I mean, I didn't talk about it until a couple of years ago, but I have since tried to get to the bottom of, do you need to have drugs in your system in order to be prescribed methadone and buprenorphine? Because the answer is very hard to find. Um, and you know, if you ask me, I mean, look, my induction was, um, very simple, obviously. And in the fentanyl era where it's very hard to get on buprenorphine because fentanyl is lipophilic. So it stays, it's stored in your fat cells and people are going into precipitated withdrawal left and right. Like it's, it's practically impossible to have a smooth induction. Um, you know, so if methadone and buprenorphine reduce the risk of relapse and overdose and death, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like I saw every relapse coming from a mile away. Um, so the idea that if I if I'm a person who knows that I'm going to relapse and I can call a buprenorphine or methadone doctor, that's better than fentanyl. I mean, right. I don't care what kind of program you're with or, or who you are or what you think. Like, there's something a lot safer about methadone and buprenorphine than illicit fentanyl. So the idea that you can't get it. Um, if your system is clean, is, is just kind of downright insane. And, and I actually came up on Twitter like this morning. Um, I brought it up, and somebody who I, I um, now I'm kind of regretting even bringing it up. Uh, anyway, the, the conversation of, um, you know, you should have drugs in your system because it will show that you can tolerate methadone and buprenorphine was the argument from this person. And it's like, that's crazy. Like, you're going to these doctors because you know you can tolerate the drugs. That's why you're thinking about relapsing, right? right? And this is a legal regulated substance that saves lives. So the idea that like I should go out and shoot a bunch of fentanyl so that I can prove that I can handle the butte, like are you out of your fucking mind? I mean like that person is going to die. Yeah, there's a, a I, I'm going to say similarly – strange law at least in maryland so um as i mentioned my wife's organization is working with this methadone clinic well they also wanted to have their doctors be able to prescribe buprenorphine or you know the other uh medications and they can't do both if you have a license to dispense methadone that's all you can do you're not your doctor's not also allowed to prescribe buprenorphine like it's it's some crazy stupid like like they just make it harder for people they they do and you know the thing about methadone that um i mean i i've been on a big campaign to change this lately because you know methadone if my doctor prescribes methadone for my knee surgery which obviously it's not doing that for me 
um, and your doctor prescribes methadone for your drug addiction, you have to go to the methadone clinic to get every, every day and pee in a cup and blah, 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 right? I can get the methadone at the pharmacy and get it in monthly prescriptions. It's the mm. same methadone. Like, it's literally the exact same methadone. So the idea that, like, we want to get you back to normal. We want you to lead a normal life. We want everything to be great for you. We want to save your life. We're going to make you come to this fucking clinic every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, make you pee in a cup and disrupt your life and make it impossible for you to get a job and be a parent and all that kind of business. So when I call the methadone clinics, um, you know, on my semi-regular campaign, it's like, you guys, like, you know, they're allowed to give take-home doses and they're choosing not to. And like, I will say to all of them, you know, look, I'm, 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 a, I'm a parent. I cannot leave my house until 10 o'clock in the morning. Like, it's just not possible. So my options are, I get fentanyl delivered to my house. I'm not having fentanyl delivered to my house. Um, to be clear, this is uh, <laughs> hypothetical. Um, so either I'm going to order a bunch of drugs to my house that's, that's going to kill me, um, but I'd like, really like to get on methadone to save my life. So you're telling me that instead of saving my life, you're going to tell me to get the fentanyl? Like, that's what you're telling me? And they're like, I'm not telling you that. It's like, well, but if you're not going to give me the methadone, what are my options? Uh, right. Yeah, it's so, a tragedy you know, when it's like, easier to get illicit drugs than it is to get legal, I mean, safe drugs. What's killing, that, 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 it's like the uh, fucking antidote is harder to get than the poison. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, so David, I don't want to hold you up uh, much longer. I know you, you got some stuff going on, but I, I do want to say, so reading your book for me really re-solidified and brought home this idea of... Uh, I want to spend every day I have on this earth to the best of its ability for me, right? Um, I'm a guy who has struggled with depression, who who has been on and off different antidepressants, who it seems like no matter what I do, there's always some gnawing or, or, or you know, I, I don't know that pain, as you refer to it, is the exact right word. I don't know if we even have a word to describe what this this thing is, right? Whether it's like an underlying misery of our experience or, or something. I, I don't I don't know what it is, but I, I, you know, I'm just looking at my life. I'm looking at my father. I'm looking at his father. You know, they died around 60. That might give me 20 more years. And, and yeah, maybe I can sit still in this misery and, and through some like Buddhist process become okay with it in 10 years. But I don't want to spend half of what I got left with this dis-ease, right? I'm with you. I, I just, and I don't, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, I think buprenorphine is, is the answer for me at this point in my life, but maybe it is, right? Maybe that is, maybe it's, maybe it's some of these experiments that they're doing with psychedelics. Maybe it's, you know, maybe I do get back on cannabis or something. I don't fucking know, but I, I don't want to be well, miserable and I'm willing to bend on the abstinence. I, I, I mean, look, buprenorphine works. I mean, I took it because it, it works for my depression. Like any kind of opioid is going to work for depression because it regulates emotional pain. And buprenorphine right. is especially effective for depression because um, it sits in particular on the kappa receptor, which is the receptor that's most responsible for emotional pain. So, I mean, look, I don't want to sell you on buprenorphine. I will tell you that I think there's absolutely no shame in, uh, you know, in it, obviously. But, um, you know, I have found that that's what it does. And I think most people don't necessarily realize I'm taking um, heroin for 
depressed. Like, I don't think most people are, you know, kind of consciously, I've got to send her a text and shit. Um, I don't think most people are consciously aware that like, I'm taking a painkiller to kill emotional pain. I think people are just like, I'm, my life sucks. So I'm on heroin. Um, you know, but buprenorphine, I mean, look, if, if an, like, um, 49% of depressed adults are unresponsive to antidepressants. There's two kinds of antidepressants. Um, so here, sorry. Um, there's two kinds of antidepressants and, and they don't work for most people. So the idea that, you know, buprenorphine is going to work, like there have been lots of studies about small dose buprenorphine for, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, for, for depression. I think in today's environment, nobody in their right mind is going to suggest an opioid for anything, um, right, you know, right. when, when we're living in, a, you know, this kind of age. But um, there's lots of studies that show that work. And like, why wouldn't it work? It's, you know, I mean, notwithstanding whatever the word is that you're, we're looking for to apply to whatever this is, like emotional well-being, if you're not unwell emotionally, it's unwell emotional well-being. Like, you know, so, so um, you know, it saturates your receptors. It does the same thing um, that dope does. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, if you want to talk about it some other time, I'm happy to do that. I always have a massive stockpile of it because people can't get it. I'm happy to give it to you. I'm not a drug dealer. Um and it's illegal to give it to you, so I'm not actually going to give it to you. Um, <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, so David, to speak to your point, yeah, exactly. The fact that you mentioning that buprenorphine might be good for my depression and, and the fact that I got to worry about, oh, well, what does my peer group think about that or this, that, or the other? That's the exact problem. There's too much shame. And, and I really appreciate your book because I think The Weight of Air is, is a good read to really rethink some of these ideas that we've just had drilled into our heads. And, and thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you very thank much you for, for coming that. on. And it was very fun talking to you. Um, yeah, I guess my biggest hope is that we respect each other as recovery people and we come together to sort of fight against like the stigma and the shame and all those Absolutely. things that we can help and support each other in our different paths and more people can get the help that they need. So we, we, thank we you very to, much. You know, this is the leading cause of death. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, you know, give me a call anytime. I'm happy to pick up the conversation. All right. Sounds great, David. Good talking to you. Cool. You too. All right. Bye. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us.